Let's hear the word of God now from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Be seated. Well, we're so happy this morning to have Dr. Thornberry with us. He's uh, here from Manhattan, where he lives with his wife and his two daughters. He is, the, uh, uh, he is a popular uh, lecturer, writer, and, of course, the president of the King's College in New York City. So we're so thrilled that you're here with us this morning, Greg. Let's give him a warm welcome this morning. Well, how are you doing? Uh, people, that's what people expect from uh, a New Yorker. Unfortunately, that Bronx accent has sort of gone the way of the dinosaur because interlopers like me, from not from New York City, have uh, taken over. But it's a real privilege to be here. Um, I know that, based upon my uh, college rhetoric classes, that you're not supposed to start a message with apologies. But uh, I do have two. The first one is that normally I have a, um, a relatively sonorous, high tenor voice that sort of David Sedaris meets Francis Schaeffer. Um, today, it's, it's something, I, I'm, I'm, my voice is more fragile, so I apologize for the timbre of my voice. It's a little more like Martin Lloyd-Jones meets Bob Dylan today. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm not sure, that's, a, that's actually funny to some of you that actually have heard <laughs> Lloyd-Jones preach. For the rest of you, that, that one's not for you. The, the second one is this, that if I could prove why this phenomenon happens probably at the level of quantum mechanics, I could win the Nobel Prize in physics, and it is this. I have noticed that, for example, when you go to a restaurant, whenever you don't need your server, they're right up in your face, they are asking how things are, if it, you know, they're constantly talking to you, but then when you actually need them, they are nowhere to be found. Have you noticed that? That's very interesting. There's this issue of how presence happens. Now, here's the related phenomenon. I have also found that whenever you are a visitor to a church for the first time, the regular pastor is never preaching there. So I want to apologize to all the visitors uh, who are here today. I am uh, not Dr. Josh uh, Moody. Uh, I was reflecting uh, upon this on the drive in this morning that I'm coming up on my 20th anniversary of knowing Josh Moody. I was introduced to him uh, by a mutual friend of ours, Dr. Mark Dever, uh, in the summer of 1997 um, in, uh, in Cambridge, England. I was studying at uh, the other place, Oxford, and Josh was doing his dissertation on uh, Jonathan Edwards and, and John Locke, and I've, uh, I met uh, Josh and Rochelle there. So it is a privilege to be at College Church in Wheaton. It's a special privilege 
uh, to be in the pulpit of a great hero of mine, Kent Hughes. So um, thank you for letting me be here. I, uh, I chose as my text for uh, a visiting a sermon, Psalm 23, uh, because I myself have found personally that I have not actually heard a lot of preaching on Psalm 23, despite the fact that it's one of the most well-known uh, texts in all of Scripture. Now, where is the place that you typically hear Psalm 23? At a funeral. And certainly it's appropriate there because of that passage about, uh, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But it's unfortunate that the funeral service gets Psalm 23 because Psalm 23 really isn't about death per se. It is more about our life with God. And I can say, I think, without any, any uh, hint of debate that the 23rd Psalm in our culture is one of the most controversial and uh, counterintuitive texts in the modern world. Because uh, when you read the um, high priests of modernity, uh, they very much do not like the message of Psalm 23. For those of you that um, were uh, philosophy majors in college or at least had a good liberal arts education, somewhere along the way you probably read Friedrich Nietzsche's also Sprach Zarathustra. And Zarathustra comes wandering down from the mountains to tell people the story of the Superman, the Ubermensch, the one who overcomes, who asserts his free spirit into the world. And Zarathustra levels a very, very heavy criticism for not only the concept of shepherds and the notion of people being sheep, which he says is endemic to the Judeo-Christian worldview. We should not be like sheep, Nietzsche says. That is bad, right? (laughs) Another great luminary, if uh, you can call him great, of the 20th century, uh, the great reinventor of the ideas of Sigmund Freud, Jacques Lacan, who was um, a psychoanalyst and uh, structuralist philosopher living in the... uh, middle part of the 20th century, once said that the fundamental principle of all of life is this, never, ever betray your desire. Always pursue your desires. And when we look at a text like Psalm 23, what we learn a sheep is and what a sheep wants is almost exclusively determined by the shepherd. So we are dealing with a very countercultural text when we approach Psalm chapter 23. Now, I, I did something that I always tell my students not to do when they're writing, and this usually gets drubbed out of you in, in, a, in a good college writing one class. Um, but I'm going to do it anyway. I I want to find the best definition that I could of sheep. Now, you're not supposed to do this. Go to Webster's Dictionary. But I did look up who the leading world ethologist is of sheep. 
and it's uh, Dr. Robert Kilgore from the University of Tennessee, and he defines sheep in this way. Let's see if this casts any light upon our subject today. A sheep is a defenseless, wary, tight-flocking, visual wool-covered ruminant, cud-chewing animal, evolved from a desert or mountain grassland habitat with low water needs, and displaying a follower-type dom-precocial offspring relationship with strong imitation between young and old in establishing range systems, showing seasonal breeding and a separate male subgroup structure at certain times of the year. (laughs) Hide it in your heart. Now, the only, I think that's a very good definition. I think the key words there are follower type. The sheep is a follower type. And this is very important, and this is the first reason why this text in Psalm 23 is so controversial, because what a sheep wants is almost completely determined by the shepherd. We all remember the Lord Jesus saying, I am the gate or I am the door of the sheep, right? And we take that metaphorically. And all too often, evangelicals do not take metaphors in the Bible very well. And we try to make them literal. But here's one instance in which something that is a metaphor is also very literal. When Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep in uh, John chapter 10. And when he said, I, the sheep hears my voice. He literally meant, if in the ancient Near Eastern world, if you know what a sheep pen looked like, if you've ever been to the Middle East, there was a stone wall that surrounded the sheep while they were asleep at night, and the door actually was the shepherd. He sat in the middle of the door to make sure that no intruder, whether that be a wolf or some other kind of predator, did not make his way in. Literally adore the sheep, literally protecting every aspect of the life. It reminded me of a beautiful prayer that Martin Luther prayed. We're in the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Every morning, Luther prayed this prayer, O Lord, we thank you as we have arisen this morning, how you kept us safe from all sin and evil while we slept, affording us the angels of your holy protection around the corners of our bed, keeping us and our little ones safe from all calamity and alarm. I love that. That is not something we can take for granted. There are Christians all around the world, like our friends, brothers and sisters in Christ in Nigeria, who don't go to sleep at night, assuming that the angels of protection must be around them because at any moment, invaders like Boko Haram might interrupt their sleep and great harm might come to them. So a sheep listens to the shepherd's voice. And as we know from John 10, when Jesus said, the sheep hear my voice and they follow me, we know that if a shepherd speaks and calls out to his sheep, even if it is a mixed group of different groups of sheep with different shepherds, the sheep will always follow their shepherd's voice and not the voice of another. And that is one of the key characteristics, according to Dr. Robert Kilgore, that is one of the uh, distinguishing characteristics of sheep versus goats. Goats are very independent, 
They sit on their own fence post and whistle their own tune. They go their own way. They do not listen to the shepherd's voice. They're uh, <clears throat> like faculty at a college <laughs> or university. Sorry, I had to get that one in. Have to get your administrator joke in there. So uh, it comes with the territory. As I've reflected upon the, the, the 23rd Psalm over these, uh, these many years, um, I was greatly influenced by my, my visits to Israel and to the Middle East and understanding that the setting of the 23rd Psalm in its historical context, there are some differences between what is sort of in our imaginations and the way the 23rd Psalm has get, gotten taken up in, in, in our own uh, artistic portrayals and, and in things like funeral services. And it, may, it actually may be quite a bit different than what the psalmist had in mind. So, for example, in verse 2, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. I think... When we think of sheep and green pastures, we have in our mind, you know, the, the moors of Scotland, right? These beautiful, leafy, green landscapes and these fluffy sheep sort of slowly walking through these fields and very often in front of your car when you need to go somewhere. For those of you that have ever taken a car trip through through Ireland or Scotland, you know that sheep are on their own timetable, and they may just stand there for a while. And that's the highlands of Scotland is sort of the image that we have of sheep. But this probably could not be further from the mind of the psalmist, of David as he's writing this text, because 70% of Palestine is desert. There are no large, green expanses that sheep can sort of feast themselves on. Now, I have to give at this juncture a sidebar compliment to College Church because I never, ever, ever use PowerPoint or slides when I preach. The only, uh, the only exception is this particular sermon where I actually do have slides of the ancient Near East, but then I, I, and I was thinking, oh, maybe I'll bring my PowerPoint with us. Oh, I'm preaching at college church. They, <laughs> they don't do that there, you know. So you're going to have to let me paint a mental picture for you. The green pastures that the psalmist is talking about is, and actually to this day, this is what shepherds do. The green pastures they're referring to are not big expanses of green, but rather the shepherd knows which mountain faces face the Mediterranean. And there's just enough moisture coming off of the ocean in the morning to cause these little tufts of grass, sporadic, over a hillside to pop up. And those are the green pastures to which the shepherd leads the sheep. Now, why is that image significant? We like to believe that when we have an image like green pastures, it's an image of prosperity and increase and abundance. 
But that almost assuredly is not what is going on here. If we think in that way when we think of green pastures, we're probably missing the biblical imagery here. It's easy to say that we trust God when we are in a land of plenty, but the image here is that there is just enough for the sheep to eat. There's not enough in these green pastures of the deserts of Palestine to get fat and sassy with. There's just these little tufts of grass, and it's enough to get them to the next day. Here's the point. When you are in the wilderness... There is not enough to go it on your own. You have to rely on the shepherd every day to lead you to your daily bread. Just a couple of mouthfuls. Just enough to get you to the next stage. The wilderness imagery is one of oppression. It's hot. It's combative. It is a difficult place to live. And there's just enough that the shepherd can find to you to get to the next stage. It's counterintuitive. We think of, now, the way we think of wilderness, we think of desert as a bummer type imagery in the Bible. But it's actually not. If you look at the uh, the major and the minor prophets, what you find is again and again, the way the Lord thinks of his time in the wilderness with the people of God, Israel, the imagery there is that of honeymoon. If you go to Jeremiah 2, for example, if you have your Bibles, the Lord appeals To the people of Israel, he says, remember when we were in the desert and I was the bridegroom and you were the bride? You were my bride in the wilderness. The wilderness imagery is actually positive imagery because it's in the wilderness that there is nothing else going on but God's covenant love for his people despite their sin. Friends, there is gospel in the wilderness. Look at Hosea chapter 2 of verse 14 with me for just a moment. Hosea 2. Therefore, I will allure her and bring her back into the desert. And speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards. And make the valley of Akor a door of hope. This is not a message that we're accustomed to hearing. That being in an oppressive, lonely, despairing type of environment. Like the wilderness or the desert is good news. But it is in the wilderness with just enough to eat and where we learn to rely upon God alone radically that we learn God's covenant love for us. And so, friends, let me say this. If I don't miss my guess, there are people in this room who are feeling like you are in the wilderness, that God has left you, 
that when you pray, you are praying to nothing but the ceiling. That you have been abandoned, maybe even by your family or your friends or your church, God forbid, but it happens. And in that moment, when you are struggling to survive, when you feel absolutely for the loan and you feel like you are in the desert, here is the message of the Bible to you today. God waits for you in the wilderness. He is there for you in the desert. He leads me beside still waters. Again, this is another beautiful image, this image of still waters, but has probably, unfortunately, gotten co-opted by, I don't know, Thomas Kincaid paintings or something like that. I mean, I think one of the upsides to the decline of the Christian bookstore is that all this bad art is going to go the way of the dodo bird. Uh, At least it won't be as easily accessible to the unwitting Christian public. Um, But you have these, you know... um, uh, you know, you have, oh, don't get me going on Thomas Kincaid, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, maybe those aren't uh, warm hearth fires burning. Maybe people are being incinerated in there, um, in those houses. Um, he leads me beside still waters. We have this image. I've seen these paintings of these sheep that are by these, you know, nice little, you know, rivers out in the middle of, I don't know, uh, North Carolina or something like that. I don't think that's the image here. What I've been told by archaeologists and and my guides when I've been in Israel, that that imagery is this. Did you know that in the ancient Near East, the number one cause of death for animals in the wilderness was drowning, flash flooding, And if you know anything about the topsy-turvy climatological environment of Israel, you know that the weather changes radically. And what would happen is there would be a thunderstorm maybe 10 miles north of where you were, and there was this torrent of rain, and because because of erosion and because of the, the way in which these valleys happen, there'd be this rush of water that would come down, and unless you knew that there was a storm on the horizon as a sheep, you could be right in the down, drinking from this, from this uh, water, water that started to trickle, and all of a sudden that trickle of water becomes a torrent of water, and you go under and die. The shepherd can look at the horizon and know what is going to happen. And he leads us by the waters from which it is safe to drink, knowing that the storms of culture or of life, are coming in order for us to avoid it. And once again, it makes us absolutely dependent upon his vision rather than ours. We live in a culture of strategic planning and of long-term visions. I feel bad for college graduates because inevitably people say to them, where do you see yourself in five years or ten years? Well, the good news is As long as you're with the shepherd in the wilderness, you don't have to know that yourself. He knows. Verse 3, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I think I like some of the translations that say he leads me in straight paths for his name's sake because 
Again, historically, that's probably what's going on here. If any of you have ever been to Israel and you've been into the Judean uh, countryside in, in the desert, you know if you're making your way from Masada to Jerusalem, for example, you can see these crisscrossy, winding paths carved into the hillsides that have been worn there by animals and sheep and, uh, and, and, and people. And it's hard to tell where these paths go. And if a sheep is lost or on its own, it can easily follow down a path that is a dead end or dangerous. And you can, to this very day, you can see the carcasses of dead animals that fell off because they went down the wrong path. The imagery of he leads me in paths of righteousness. I don't want to take anything away from holiness here. I'm not an antinomian. But I think the imagery is this. The shepherd would walk just far enough, knowing all of the paths, having memorized all the paths and where they go. He walks just far enough for the sheep to walk straight to him. It's like one step at a time. Let me take you one step of the journey of the time. Think Gandalf, right? In the mines, with the dwarves, right? Yeah, every, just one step along the way. One of the images that I love that I think illustrates this is that, is that picture at the beginning of Prince Caspian where incredibly, once again, you have Peter, Edmonds, and Susan don't believe Lucy that she has seen Aslan. I mean, like, they're doing it again, Right? Uh, the first time you read this is, is, as a kid, you're like, I can't believe this is happening again. She sees Aslan up on a mountain face. Here's their king. And Aslan is beckoning them to come. Only Lucy sees them. And she says, if we just go straight that way, we will reunite with Aslan. But they don't believe her. And so... Using their reason, they, they say, well, Peter, Nedman, Susan, we'll take, we'll take the river. We'll follow the river. And by using their own reason and their own common sense, they nearly lose their lives. When all they had to do is walk straight a little way up to Aslan. He leads me in straight paths for his name's sake. And what does that mean, for his name's sake? It means simply this, it's gospel. There is no concept of merit in the world of sheep and shepherd. It's all on the shepherd. No merit on the part of the sheep. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Literally, in my limited understanding of Hebrew, the, the literal translation here is this valley of deep, deep darkness, which I think is actually more apt. When we are in the dark, we cannot see who the predators are. And when things go both literally and psychologically bump in the night, we need the rod, the club that the shepherd uses to fight off our enemies and the staff to pull us back in when we are about ready to fall off of the precipice. 
The valley of deep, deep darkness is a place that you cannot go without the light of the shepherd. And it is in that valley of deep, deep darkness when we fear for our very lives that it is the shepherd who has to come to our aid and protect us. Now, in this world of living in the wilderness and this oppressive environment in which there actually is only enough to get us from day to day, where it's this radical dependence in this oppressive environment relying upon the shepherd, that the psalmist closes the text with this promise of blessing. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. One of the things that I lament about our culture and and, and the whole process of suburbanization and how we've all have these nice big houses with, you know, you know, fenced in yards and well I don't. I live in an eight hundred square foot apartment in Manhattan, but it still applies to all of us. In that environment we have these amazing places and yet maybe not the Christian community, but the whole spirit of hospitality is becoming more and more bizarre, more and more strange, more and more remote from this generation. So it is arresting if you today go and you you observe Bedouin culture. If they see a stranger wandering through the wilderness from a long way off, that is when the banquet starts getting prepared. And the stranger who is dying of hunger and thirst is welcomed in. And not only is there enough to eat, they are treated like royalty in this environment where everything would try to destroy them. And here's the application. Here's the catch. That my cup overflows only comes when you're in the desert of despair. Friend, if you are feeling alone in the world, if you are feeling that you do not have any friend, if your doubts are overwhelming you, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Do your friends despise, forsake you? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms, he'll take and shield thee. You will find a solace there. Friends, If that is you today, God invites you back to the wilderness. His covenantal love with you is displayed in the midst of your suffering. And your desperate need for him is a reminder of our need for the gospel. And for the Lord Jesus, who went into the wild to be tempted by the devil... And overcame sin, flesh, and the devil, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. To become our sinless sacrifice and substitute on the cross. Triumphing over it with the resurrection.
the wilderness is okay. You will find God there. Will you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word. It is right and it is true. And as we anticipate that banquet at the end of the world, we pray that you might prepare a table for us in the presence of our enemies now. And as we eat and drink anew, we pray that it might be a foretaste of the time in which we will eat and drink anew in the coming kingdom of God. Even as we pray, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon us. Amen.